she's dirty all now now again lads i'm all over the shop this week uh thanks very much to everybody who got in touch about last week's podcast with the wonderful marion keys uh, we had some great reactions on on social media. Such an extremely popular person. I think uh, the whole idea of calling it why does why does Sweden love you, Marion Keys, really really worked out because it was a great response to that. And Marion is a, a tremendous person. And as I say, if you do have the chance to get down to see her at the Gothenburg Book Fair, please do that. Still haven't received any details. That might be the details coming in now on WhatsApp. Uh, about the things that she's going to be doing uh, at the Gothenburg Book Fair in the very near future. Um, God, it's all gone mad here altogether. As you may know, I think I mentioned it in the last, last podcast, I was in America there for, for a week and I'm completely upside down at this point in time. So um, the old jet lag, I got over there and as it was only going to be on the West Coast for a week, I thought to myself, right, well, I'll try not to get too excited right i'll try not to do the complete sort of um change to like nine hours of a time difference between los angeles las vegas and uh, and stockholm i was over there for the ufc event didn't quite manage it and i came home the other night just didn't sleep at all lying in the bed and um then you know i said ah oh, you know just snooze for a while and then all of a sudden you know it's four hours later it's like what the hell is going on here so if i am not myself today i'll have to blame it on the jet lag and hopefully that normal service will be resumed next week another uh, fairly jam-packed show for you this week uh, before we go on we will of course remind you as we always have to remind you that this is a community supported podcast it's for you supported by you if you want to support at patreon.com forward slash arrow man in stockholm you can do that and throw in a few bob every month for less than the price of a cup of ex- espresso house coffee every month to make a big difference to keeping the podcast going or you can swish a few bob to one two three two four two four one six six that's one two three two four two four one six six now a little bit later on in today's episode you're going to be hearing a voice that hasn't been heard in stockholm in quite some time but it's somebody i really wanted to catch up with because it's somebody whose uh, career basically uh, took off after he arrived over here with his wife it's uh, a goldsmith from county mayo named nigel o'reilly and nigel came over here it's probably 12 years ago now spent two and a half years working with michael o'dwyer over here uh, michael will be mel- well known to many people who've been residents in stockholm for a long time fantastic jeweler uh, he's had a couple of people over a couple of apprentices uh, over from Ireland in the meantime who've learned their trade so to speak uh, over here and Nigel was one of the originals there so I thought I'd catch up with him a little bit but before I do that um, our good friends and supporters over there at the Irish Chamber of Commerce in Sweden have been engaging in a number of events uh, around the subject of applied sustainability now the first one happened I think was I was away in America there so I wasn't able to attend it myself uh, and I, indeed I did sort of plug it on the podcast beforehand as something that you should consider attending if you had the time but what I wanted to do was I wanted to catch up with the Irish Chamber and find out a little bit more about that series of events and you know what kind of things are going on at the moment. So I got in touch with Rory Moore up in Urkholsvik and he very kindly came on the podcast and gave me a few minutes of his time to explain what uh, this series is about, who's behind it and what sorts of topics you're going to be hearing about over uh, the coming I think two or three events. There's at least two events left anyway. Should we have a little listen to Rory and see what he has to say up there in the frozen north? about applied sustainability then, will we? Um, Rory, 
I suppose could we just start by explaining what the purpose of this series of events about applied sustainability is that the Irish Chamber of Commerce in Sweden is involved in? Yeah, absolutely. Maybe just a little bit of context behind the origination and idea behind the events to, to start with. So the the events is a, a series is a collaboration between the Irish Chamber of Commerce in Sweden and the uh, Norwegian Irish Irish Norwegian Chamber of Commerce in Norway and the Irish Business Club in Finland and the Irish Latvian Chamber of Commerce and collectively we have a, a, a collaboration uh, under the umbrella of what we call Northern Light so this is the first series of webinars where we're trying to unpack what we believe to be a very misunderstood topic that that, that being uh, of applied sustainability and uh, Roger Strevens, who's the, the chairman of the chamber in Norway, uh, this is his area of expertise. He, he lives this every day in his professional life. And he and I came together and said, right, this is something that probably needs a bit of unpacking and explanation. So Roger had the first event, uh, or, or should I say it was a speaker at the first event a couple of weeks back. He went down a treat. I think it gave a lot of people who attended that event a lot of context and better understanding of what it is. And uh, he gave a very clear explanation of uh, the context in terms of being a large company and how in today's environment and economy, you can create sustainable services, products, a sustainable approach to your business, but make it worthwhile for your business to do so, meaning it has to be money involved in some meaningful way. Mm -hmm. So in other words, how do you embrace the, the, the need to be sustainable in your everyday business life, but make sure that it's good for business to do so? Yeah. So that's kind of it in, in, in a nutshell. And the next event, which will be held on the 6th of October, a couple of weeks' time, we will actually go to the other end of the scale in terms of uh, size, and we'll be talking to a gentleman called Gary Cass, who has moved all the way from Australia to, in fact, my hometown here in Ernstelsvik in northern Sweden. And he is uh, an entrepreneur and startup uh, within this whole space of applied sustainability. And he'll be talking about his very, very uh, entertaining journey uh, about how he arrived in Sweden and what he's doing over here and the challenges as well as the benefits that he sees uh, working within this applied sustainability space. Okay. And then the third uh, event in the webinar, we'll be talking with somebody from a very large Finnish company. Uh, I won't mention her name just yet until we have everything confirmed, but she works for uh, Kony. Kony are the company that make all those lifts and elevators that you see in everything from hospitals and airports and hotels. And uh, she will be talking about uh, what Kony, as an industrial giant, what their take is on applied sustainability. In other words, how are they making money from this and why they're doing this and what the drivers are for doing this. So the applied part then is, that sounds like the business part to me. Sustainability, we all know what it is, but the applied part is how people are making money from this. Is, is that being a bit crass? Um, it, it's a bit more more depth within how people are making money. It's how businesses are changing their business models to ensure that they are taking on the responsibility of uh, maintaining and developing sustainable practices, right? But also, even in their own products and services, what sustainability means towards their uh, towards their customer base and towards their markets. Yes. How important is it, Rory, to have a reputation as that kind of person or that kind of company in Sweden at the moment? Because you know, it's always been one of the leading lights when it comes to sustain to sustainability, and environmental issues. You know, but is that important in terms of of branding, in terms of getting new business in the future? You know, 
if I was to be slightly skeptical here, <laughs> right? <laughs> I think over the last number of years, uh, you know, a lot of companies have been talking about their environmental impact and that sustainability, primarily through a, a, a CSO or many corporate social responsibility perspective. And that's not wrong, by the way. Uh, so there's been a lot of focus on uh, measuring what is our environmental impact as, as a company, as an organization, and trying to reduce, for example, the CO2 footprint and things like that. And that, that's all very, very good and very, very honorable. The difference between that and applied sustainability is how do you truly, as a company, uh, uh, deliver uh, uh, sustainable uh, products and services to your customers that your customers are willing to pay for? And where your customers understand not only the sustainability angle but the, the the total business package behind that product or that service so in other words not that the customers are buying it because it is purely a sustainable thing but the sustainability sustainability part is built into the into the business offering and um, as a rule just from the people that you've been speaking to and i'm sure people will hear more about this if they attend these events are things that are sustainable do they tend to be more expensive nowadays would you say <laughs> that's a good question um, on average, there there is always that chance that there's going to be a higher price tag because, for example, the technology behind it might be more expensive, or the the the, the R and D cost behind it, so on and so forth. I, I think we're actually at a tipping point right now where there's so much advance from a technology and a material and a product development perspective. I think they're probably on a par, and in some cases, even cheaper. But it's a case that of how do you change the consumer or customer mindset that you know, to move away from the old, for example, plastics towards uh, something that's better in terms of packaging, for example, that might be cellulose-based or, or what have you. So there's a bit of a market mindset change that's happening there as well. A shift there. What's it like putting together with these events with, with colleagues in Finland and, and in Norway and in uh, and the Baltic states? A lot of fun. A lot of fun. I mean, look, we, we set up Northern Light. Uh, not that we, not an attempt to merge all these chambers together f far from it's a knowledge exchange platform primarily first and foremost for the chambers and for, for the people who are involved in the chambers but the benefits of that is that it spills over into our individual members right so in other words the members we have in sweden and members that might exist for the for, for, for the finnish organization latvian organization what have you we're all benefiting from from this knowledge exchange and i think this event series is just one one example of that i mean at, at the end of the day all of these chambers we are non-profit organizations led by volunteers right so everybody sits in the board in the irish chamber we are volunteers so it's a great way to kind of share a bit of the the the, the, the workload on one hand but also benefit from the, the experience and from the knowledge of, of the other people sitting on the, the the boards of the other chambers so it's a lot of fun it really is a lot of fun do you find the experience is very different for for the people but i'm thinking in the baltic states primarily or you know do the people working with the, the various business organizations in norway and finland have similar experiences to you or does it vary a lot um, it's a good question. I mean, each each of the different organisations, I mean, our sister chambers, we, we would have our own slightly different take on, on what our mission statement is, uh, so to speak, because at the end of the day, the Swedish market is different from the Finnish market, and that's finished different from the Latvian market and the Norwegian market. So in terms of what our members expect from us, there'd be slight differences there. But but overall, there's a lot of commonality there in terms of terms of the quote-unquote mission and, and, and in terms of what we actually want to achieve. 
um, I suppose one of the most fundamental things is uh, joining the Irish Chamber of Commerce in Sweden itself, because that's open to both individuals and to companies, right? Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but it costs somewhere around 450 crowns for an individual and 4,500 for a company. Is that correct? It, that's correct. Yes. Yeah. 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 And, that is correct. Uh, but but just just one thing. I mean, we, we actually have several different kind of uh, let's say membership profiles. So, for example, this year now we've been working very very hard in the Irish Chamber here in Sweden to expand that. So. This year now we've launched uh, what are called mentor programs. So mm -hmm. uh, you know any any person, Irish professional living in Sweden who would like to benefit from the experience of both people on the sitting on the board, but also our wider uh, membership network. You know, take a look at our website irishchamber.sd. If you, you can see there's a section there for mentor program. Take a look at that. Reach out to us, and we can sit down and talk about what the membership options are. I mean, at the day, at the end of the day, as I said, we are non-for-profit, so it's not about the money for us, right? Mm -hmm. Another membership profile that we're getting up and running as we speak is our academic membership, and that's free of charge. So, if you are a student either in Ireland or, in fact, an Irish student in Sweden, and you would like to avail of the the network that we have, reach out to us. It's free. Again, you'll find everything on IrishChamber.se. Uh, does somebody have to be a member if they want to in, um, attend the next online event? Is this uh, applied sustainability as part of this applied sustainability series? Uh, no, not directly. So the, 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 this series is in general open, right? We, we do have to do a little bit of filtering, obviously. But the, the philosophy that we have is that if you are interested in attending, apply, just go onto our website, you see all our events series and registration there make the registration you can reach out to me or anybody else in the chamber right and you can find that via the website and uh yeah we're happy to 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 invite anybody who's interested in this topic uh, uh and who has got that irish kind of connection absolutely no problem no fees it's totally free and uh if you'd like to get a taste of the types of topics that we talk about it's certainly not a problem fantastic and there's is there three events in this series on applied sustainability we have three events uh yes at the moment uh i, I have a sneaking suspicion but we may extend that beyond three. So it's all about getting the right type of profile and interesting speakers, uh, you know, to, to kind of showcase that their, their knowledge. So actually, I'll take the opportunity to reach out to your audience here. So if anybody's interested in talking around this topic, if they have an experience about this topic, reach out to us and we'd be happy to, to take a chat with you. And are there any other events planned under the Northern Lights Banner or indeed for the Irish Chamber now that people should sort of note in their diaries? <laughs> Well, there's one big one to, to put in your diary, and uh, we'll be announcing it very, very soon. Uh, last year, we had a fantastic, uh, our first ever gala event, which was a, a roaring success. Of course, we'll be doing that again this year. So the date is this Saturday, December the 3rd. I think it is. Let me just double check here my calendar. I think it's Saturday, December 3rd. Uh, we'll be announcing it in the coming weeks. And uh, yet, yeah, registration via irishchamber.se. And that is a fantastic event. Um, and we really look forward to to announcing uh, what, what our plans are for that. Brilliant. So uh, all the details of the events can be found on irishchamber.se. And if anybody wants to reach out, I'm sure Rory Moore will be more than happy to answer your questions about it. But for oh. now, Rory, we leave it at that. And sure, we may even see you on December the 3rd. With any bit of luck, Philip. It appears that this theme of um, intersectionality, of bringing in other things, this is an important thing to do to widen the debate, do you think? Oh, sorry, this team. Theme, yeah, not team. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, of course it is. Uh, because.
There you go, that was the day uh, about a year ago, maybe a year and a half ago, when Greta Thunberg, the famous environmental activist, took the piss out of my Dublin accent and my inability to pronounce THs in polite company. And we were talking about themes of intersectionality and she heard themes of intersectionality and that was the beginning and the end of that discussion. So, um... I've interviewed her many times altogether. And her dog is from Cork, by the way. And it's one of those things that we sort of uh, bonded over a little bit. Um, there was one time I was asking her about the dog and where she got it. And she said, oh, it's a rescue dog from Cork. And I said, oh, I knew that as soon as I met her. And she said, well, how was that? I said, I could tell by the dog's accent. I think it's the only time, or it was certainly the first time that I made Geth a smile. And since then, uh, things have gone reasonably well, yeah. But uh, get involved there. The Irish uh, Chamber of Commerce in Sweden and their series of events to do with the subject of applied sustainability i'm sure Greta would probably enjoy them as well now let us move swiftly on to part artisan part artist uh, nigel o'reilly a wonderful goldsmith um nigel and his wife tracy as you will no doubt hear in this interview they were two beloved characters uh, they didn't stay here for very long they were here for about two two and a half years but they were really sort of defining years uh, in Nigel's life as a goldsmith and artist and in his wife Tracy's um, life as an artist as well. Tracy's absolutely tremendous visual artist. Now, you've, you'll have heard me say in the podcast before that I don't really know much about visual art or sculpture and that kind of thing. But as the saying goes, I know what I like and Tracy's work is just incredible. She has this ability to sort of salvage things, pieces of metal or timber or stuff and just make the most stunning creations out of it. Just an absolutely amazing artist. And she is the great woman who was behind uh, Nigel O'Reilly and his goldsmithing business. When Nigel came over here, as he explained in this interview, um, he was really a goldsmith and he wanted to become a, a stone setter or a diamond setter and that. And just the stuff that he produces is absolutely amazing. You'll hear it again about his Instagram account and go in and check that all out, you know. But I thought it might be worthwhile checking in with them as two people who'd sort of, you know, been formed really by their time in Sweden and now they've kind of left it behind. But you can't leave this place behind completely. So uh, the other night here, I caught up with them there in Mayo. The beginning of the conversation was weird because I don't know whose wireless it was, but we kept sort of dropping in and out. But we got it sorted out fairly quickly so you might hear a little bit of a jump cut a bit of an edit there that doesn't sound quite right and that was just when I lost Nigel I was trying to bring him back in again there but um, yeah it was lovely to catch up with him and here it is a man who's making the most wonderful jewellery that has now been seen in places like Sotheby's in London and the great jewellers of New York not bad for a lad who came to Stockholm via County Mayo to get his career started There we go. Nigel O'Reilly, what on earth was it that made you move to Sweden all those years ago? <laughs> it was an opportunity to train as a diamond setter. And that's what I wanted to do. I thought it was the next place for my career to go. So that's why I ended up in Stockholm back in 09. And tell me, was there just not that many opportunities for a diamond setter in rural County Mayo at that point? Or what was it? <laughs> No, Phil, there wasn't actually. <laughs> it only took me two questions to get the dig at Mayo in there. I'm really proud of myself there, Nigel. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, oh, I miss chatting to you, Phil. <laughs> <laughs> but not for long. This will do for another few years. So I was training as a goldsmith with uh, Rudolf Helsel in Kilkenny. And while I was in Kilkenny, I listened to a talk by Michael O'Dwyer, who had just come back from Antwerp. 
and he was learning a new diamond setting technique, which was involving using um, uh, microscopes and pneumatic controlled engravers, which I thought was absolutely fascinating. And I really thought that's where I could, you know, move my career on. But the diamond course was going to cost me about roughly 25,000 euros. I was a long way off that. So my plan was to try and save up and, you know, get money somewhere to go and do the course. I was probably about nine months with Rudolph and then I got a, got a call off Michael and he said, if I came to Sweden, because uh, his wife was from Stockholm, so he had set up a shop in Stockholm and he was just going out on his own and he wants, he said, if I moved over with him, he'd train me out to be a diamond setter if I did the goldsmithing and uh, helped set up the shop and work together with him. So it was a no brainer for me to get that kind of opportunity to move to Sweden and to learn how to be a micro diamond setter. So that's how I ended up in, in Stockholm. I suppose now is as good a time as any to introduce the world to your wonderful and beautiful wife, Tracy Sweeney, an artist in her own right. The two of you were together. What was Tracy's reaction when you said, come on, Tracy, we're moving to Sweden. I've got to learn how to set diamonds. <laughs> well, she was part of the, the plan for Antwerp and we kind of figured out how we we're going to do that. Um, we also thought about moving to Germany uh, to go work in Stuttgart. But uh, when I told her, it was just pure excitement. It was like, yeah. Come on, let's let's give it a go. Why not? She was up for it. Um, yeah, and the good thing about being an artist is that you can do your art wherever you go. Do you know? Um, in some ways, it was almost a, a good thing because when she got there, there was nothing else she could do but work as an artist. Like there wasn't the fail safe of going to work in a pub or something like that. Um, she didn't want to. She wouldn't want to do that anyway. But that wasn't there so it was kind of like for her she had to go all out and and go for it and she definitely did that mm -hmm. was it a big change for you because you know obviously the swedes speak better english than you or me you know but i mean coming over here as a goldsmith <laughs> di uh, diamond setter uh, or indeed as an artist what was life like for yourself and tracy in terms of settling in because you had a job to go to but she sort of didn't it wasn't easy, um, I'll be honest with you. I was working a lot. Uh, like, I'd be gone at 7 o'clock in the morning. I wouldn't come in the door until 7 in the evening. Um, maybe she liked it. <laughs> <laughs> I never actually asked her. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah. Um, I suppose it was, it was all so new to us that it was very exciting. Like, the first few months... Um, it was all just really, just really cool. It took a while to get used to this. Um, but then we started to get used to it. But then around January, February of that year, I suppose we were starting to miss friends and um, we found it hard enough to meet people. You know, like I was working so much with Michael that I didn't really want to be socializing with him as well. Hmm. And it was hard enough to meet, meet Sweet, as you will know. But yeah. um Luckily, two fellas set up Stockholm Gales. Uh, I can't remember their names. I've heard yeah. of those two characters. I think I'll have to get them on the yeah, podcast at some time, yeah. you know. But look, don't be giving Good credit guys, to them yeah. fuckers, you know. <laughs> but but that, was, that was your sort of room. <laughs> no, no, in fairness, um, you and uh, Colin, like, I don't think we would have been able to stay in, in Stockholm for as long because once we started training with the Stockholm Gales, our whole social network changed. Everything was just absolutely 
uh, it just made things a lot easier, do you know? So, uh, yeah, thanks. Anyway, <laughs> no, you're more than welcome. And there's a jersey there with your name on it. Anytime you want to come back here, you know, because uh, for those of you who don't know Nigel, he may not be the biggest man in the world, but my God, he hits like a fucking express train when he's playing corner back there, you know. But um, how was it professionally? Uh, because uh, that was a good while ago. I don't know. Do I still have the pace? I'd okay. say you probably still do now, judging by a few of them, you know. But when you when you were thinking of going to Antwerp, you were thinking of spending, you know, 25 grand on becoming a diamond setter there. Um, how was your sort of professional development over here, Nigel? Was it was it worth your while to come here and to work for Michael? Did you learn the things you wanted to learn then? Oh yes, completely. I learned what I wanted to learn and an awful lot more. Um, my whole like working with Rudolf was fantastic. He's a master craft craftsman, and um, unfortunately, he passed away during COVID, and we um, we never really got to fully celebrate his life, which is another thing that happened. Um, but what he was very traditional in his in his thinking and his training, which is still what I base all my work on. But when I moved to Stockholm, I seen how things could change with using technology. And I used to be um, a toolmaker. So I once I seen the technology been used, it was all very... Um, easy for me to see how that could be used even more so and pushing pushing the boundaries of what you can do with design by using technology and it's not shortcutting the craft it's just heightening what you can do and with with metal and being able to manipulate the metal in different ways gets different results and using technology can help you do that so it's it gave me more than I ever expected for like, I was only supposed to stay there a year and it was like two and a half years later before we left. Um, explain the, the basics of it, right? Say if I had enough uh, money to be going and buying wonderful rings from Nigel O'Reilly, the goldsmith uh, for my wonderful wife here, how do you go about making it, right? So you start with some metal and you start with some diamonds. Do you have like a style? Do you have something that you want to express every time you make a piece or does that depend on the person who's ordering it? Do you just make some stuff according to your own designs and then put them in your shop or how does it work? Well... Luckily enough, I've got to a stage now where my design, people are coming looking for my designs and it's all, a lot of it is in my head, do you know? Mm. So everything is um, by commission. So when I'm working with people, they will come to me, they've seen my work before and maybe they'll pick the center stone, but then they kind of leave it up to me to work out from that you know and i suppose that has been a long enough process you have to take the time to get your style and that's the thing i suppose that really takes the the effort is to to figure out what you're trying as you said what you're trying to say with your work and what you're trying to express so i don't really look at other jewelry um, much at all because if you start looking at other jewelry then you just start to make something that looks like that or a, a copy of it. So I would look at, let's say fashion would be my huge influence, um, even down to musical styles and different approaches um, musicians have to the way they work. I would try and incorporate that into my work as well so that you end up coming up with something 
something different, you know, something that isn't just a, another replica of something that Tiffany did in the 50s. You know, you have to you have to be able to try and push it and see how far you can go with the design or with, like I said, mixing that in with technology, but based on the traditional skills, it's it's fun and it should be fun. You should be excited by working on these pieces because mm-hmm. if you're if you're just copying something, then, you know, it's a waste of time mm-hmm. in, in my view. What do you think attracts people to your work, Nigel? What do they see in it? What does it make them feel and, uh, you know, that they want to order something from you? And, you know, because it's a fairly big investment in terms of, you know, if you're making an engagement ring or a wedding ring or something like that, they have to trust you a lot that you're going to come up with something that they like. So what is it that that draws them to you? <laughs> Again, that's a hard one to, <laughs> to ask. No easy question here, pal. Um, this is like the legal set. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um yeah i don't know i suppose it's the originality of the work do you know um it was frank everett in sotheby's i i pretty much asked him that question i was like why why are you picking my work do you know and he was like i see an amazing amount of jewelry and he's like but only a few pieces actually are original and he goes, and it's nice to see something original that's well made. And I suppose that that was one of the biggest compliments you can ever get, really, mm. do you know. It's not um, bad when, yeah. when somebody from Sotheby's is saying that about your work, that's not too bad. So, I mean, obviously, yeah, yeah. The, the mention of Sotheby's there, I mean, you know, it was a brilliant start that you got with Michael O'Dwyer, but you've you've come a long way since then. And I've seen the likes of Saoirse Ronan and that kind of thing wearing your jewellery. How does that work, right? When she takes a picture with one of your rings or something on her fingers, are you standing just out of shot with a hurley there in case somebody tries to rob it? <laughs> or how does it work? <laughs> I think you all know I was no good at Hurley. A <laughs> <laughs> few Mayo men are, but there you go. <laughs> I had an O'Neill size five in my hand, you know, that is, take him out. <laughs> Your Mikasa gloves on, ready to slap somebody like that. <laughs> um, how does it work? Okay, it's it's a it's a funny one. So people, when they see the likes of Saoirse Ronan or Julia Moore wearing work, um, it's not really the actress themselves. You get to meet first it's quite a long process like the Saoirse Ronan thing probably took about a year's worth of you know calling and waiting and you know trying to get in at the right time um so you have to meet their stylist first and then when the stylist likes your work then they present the work to the actress actor and uh, yeah it just it kind of goes from there it all depends on the situation what the event is what the dress is if your work goes with the dress um it's a a fairly nervy experience actually (laughs) to try and do all that um because you just leave your work with them while they're basically designing the outfits and it's yeah it can take a a bit of stress to to do all that um but does it have yeah, a, a great effect on, you know, when she wears something, you know, we've often heard it on the, the red carpet as, as celebrities are passing by, oh, who are you wearing and that, you know? Do you find that, you know, somebody like that wearing a piece of your jewellery, does that sort of reflect itself then on social media? Does that reflect itself in, in the inquiries that you get from people? Um, You'd be surprised, again, it gets a lot of interest, Um, let's say, in the media, 
and local media and stuff like that. But converting sales initially takes a long time. Mm. Um, like once again, there's a misconception too. And I think a lot of designers will play up to it and say, oh, that completely sold out once you wore it. And I don't agree with that. <laughs> I, I would disagree with it. Um, what it does is gives you the, how to describe it? It's the next, it's just a stamp of approval from mm. from people. And that gets you into the, the next level. Because um, I don't think any of the pieces that I sell or have sold in the last three years have been because Sorsha worn the work, but I think it's a nice stamp of approval that she had mm. worn the work. Do you know, it just gives you that extra little bit of a, like I say, stamp of approval. But what I'm finding is the people, the most people that are buying my work in the last two years are art collectors, people that like beautiful things. Um, and that's where I... The goal we had with our studio, me and Tracy, when we set it up like 10 years ago when we moved home from, from Sweden, was to create create pieces of art. Mm. And it has taken those 10 years to where we're just getting to the point where the likes of Sotheby's are interested in Bird of Goodman's in New York. And that's, it's, when you get, like you're talking about the next stamp of approval was to get into Bird of Goodman's during the summer, because for me, we set our heights, our sights on where's the best retail store in the US. And it's Bird of Goodman for me, because it has the history. It's like, it's where 90% of the, the greatest artists in the, in the US, they all start there. So mm. for us, it was kind of like, we're not going to start any smaller stores anywhere else. It was like, if you get the stamp of approval for Bird of Goodman, that just sets you apart from 95% of everybody else mm. that's out there. Is that um, sort of is that sort of worth more then than maybe Saoirse Ronan? Like once you arrive in that company, it's like, okay, this fella from Mayo, he's made it. You know, he's he's on the scene now. Yeah, it, it actually is. Um, it is worth more than celebrity endorsements. Um, celebrity endorsements are, are nice, but... Uh, if I was to give advice for other designers coming in, don't don't bet everything on that. You know, mm. it's a nice thing to do, but the the real stamp of approval is the the people that are in Bird of Goodman's and Sotheby's and art collectors, people like that. That's where that's where you should focus your your attention on. You know. Mm. How much of Sweden is still in your work, Nigel? Because obviously you learned a lot here from Michael. You did a lot of different work whilst you were here. Is there a Swedish influence uh, in the work that you're doing at the moment now, 10 years after you left? It's hard to say because I suppose what I did in Sweden was hone the craft, do you know? Mm. And you can never create anything unless you have the craft behind you, is, mm. is kind of my view. Um, I don't think you can ever fully design um, to a high level unless you've you've mastered the craft. So I I would say Sweden still has a huge influence over me. Maybe not in the design way, but in the fact that I was able to, you know, spend those two and a half years honing the craft, and then with the contacts that I made in Sweden, working in Ireland, like doing the the trade work again here in Ireland. Probably I did another five to six years 
here in Ireland before I felt comfortable designing the pieces that I'm doing now. Mm. Um, so again, it's it's hard to say where those people some often ask me where my inspiration comes from, but like everything that's happened to you in your life is some form of inspiration to what you're doing, especially if you're going to put as much of yourself into a piece, then mm. yeah. So again, Sweden had a had a huge effect on the on the the craft, which has affected my design. So I'm sure it has. It still is with me in in that respect. Mm. And um, the designs on your Instagram page, Nigel O'Reilly Goldsmith is one of the main Instagram pages that you use, right? And I'd advise people to go in and have a look. Like some of those are extremely intricate, Nigel. Um, I'm assuming microscopes have a lot to that, a lot to do with that. But do you sit there? Does it drive you to despair every day working with these tiny, tiny, precious stones? No, just it's quite the opposite. <laughs> um, it's great crack, in other words. <laughs> no, I love it. Yeah, I love it. Like. Again, people look at the, let's say, look at the Instagram feed and let's say there's a Saoirse Ronan or there's a New York or there's a Palm Beach and those things are fine, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but you'll never find me happier than when I'm just sitting at my bench. Like that's, to me, is what it's all about. Like if you, if you get into jewellery to try and be um, in New York and LA and like living what looks like the, the fun life you you'll never get anywhere because it's all based on your work your the pieces that you create so no i i absolutely love it if i can get some nice music on and just have 350 diamonds to set in different colors in an unusual pattern that to me is that is winning <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's, that's, that's winning at life right there <laughs> Yeah, it is. It is. And and people kind of misjudge what I see as success. Do you know what I see as success is being able to go to a job I I love every day hmm. and be able to have a family here in, in Mayo and be able to pay the mortgage and get things going and still have a job that I love. That that to me is success. And every time I sell a piece. Um, the financial aspects of that is is great because that means I can pay my employees, pay my diamond dealers, and make another piece. Because once I make sell a piece, I automatically pay everybody what they're owed, and then put that money into making something else and making a, a new piece. Because that to me is what it's about. It literally, you know, finances are important to keep everything going. But if you're trying to make money out of this, again. That's not the that's not the goal. Hmm. If you know if it's fame and money you're looking for, you'll never make any good. Yeah, you might you might want to get a bigger microscope. I think is the message there, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Come here, what do you listen to when you're working, Nigel? Uh, well, God, that is what I listen to. I listen to a lot of David Bowie uh, in the last few years. And because I'm hitting 40 now, I have started to listen to jazz because, you know, that's what you're supposed to do. <laughs> As a male hipster, that's what you're supposed to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If I could only get my beard a bit longer, I'd be away with it. But, uh... <laughs> but a lot of David Bowie, does it change from day to day or do you stick to the same things, you know, whilst you're making a piece? Say if you started listening I... to Miles Davis while you're making something, does Miles Davis stay with you through the process? I would try and stay with it, yeah. Yeah, mm. it's a little bit harder now because I have more people working in the workshop with me. So there's, uh, let's just say, some people don't like 
my jazz as much as I do. Yeah. All, all these young people. So it's an education for them as well, you know? It's not just the young people. Some of the older people don't like it either. Well, it's an acquired taste. My father hates jazz, absolutely despises it. Like, you know, so. But come here to me. You mentioned there as well, paying people what they're owed. You have employees there, which is great to hear. It's obviously, you know, things are on the up there, you know. Um, I'm I'm assuming that, you know, that before you sell a piece, right, and you're making this piece, et cetera, et cetera, you're talking about paying off your diamond dealers, the people you owe money to. There must be an immense amount of trust involved because, you know, you mentioned 350 tiny diamonds there. These things don't come cheaper. No, no, they don't. There's huge, um, like I'm so lucky the people that I have around me for, for many, like, like the staff I have are amazing. And without Tracy behind that, none of this would have happened. And in that, then I have an amazing diamond dealer and he's based in Antwerp. He's absolutely fascinating guy. I, I also trained with Erwin Springbrom who was a master goldsmith and he was also a gemstone cutter and he was a huge influence on my life uh, not just as a goldsmith but just his his theories on on life he like he moved from Switzerland to Roscommon in 1983 and set up a jewelry studio in his uh, in his house and I did ask him and I was like how do you have you got customers to come here? And he was like, if you make work good enough, it doesn't matter where you are, people will come. Mm-hmm. And again, I've, I've, I've stuck with that mantra for ever since I moved back to Mayo. Um, but, and he has been uh, a huge influence of it and he's lent me stones as well. So he would give me these amazing gemstones and be like, well, pay me when you sell it, you know? Mm-hmm. So, you can't, you know, that kind of help is invaluable because it gives you, takes away the pressure because if you're making, if you're given a very expensive stone and you're not under pressure to sell it quickly, you can be creative. You can start messing about and trying out different things and, you know, doing stuff that you know was going to take time to sell, but it's, it, it could and it's what you want to do as opposed to having the fear of i have to sell this quickly Mm. or else i can't pay the rent yeah so living in mayo has given me that that too because the you know it's easier to live here so i've been able to be more creative in in that respect yeah I suppose the most important commodity sometimes is time and having that time yes. to be able to do something and, and to, you know, but I, is that something that keeps you awake at night, Nigel? Because, I mean, you're talking about considerable sums of money and the thought that struck me there just as you were talking was, Jesus, imagine if it doesn't sell and you're after cutting somebody's diamond or you're after, you know, taking a stone and changing the shape and the form, et cetera, et cetera. You know, can you just hand it back and go, sorry, pal, didn't work out? Um, yeah, that's what I do. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, and um, does it keep me awake at night? I have over the years had a few sleepless weeks with finances and um and different things like that. And again, it's not I would hate to leave anybody else stuck. Like mm. I'd hate not to be able to pay uh Henry, my diamond dealer, and you know, stuff like that does that would have kept me awake for uh, a while, do you mm. know. Because for me, I'll I'll make money at something, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Stick me on a tractor or a shovel and I'll make some cement. I, I don't mind that. 
but I would hate to leave anybody else out of out of pocket based on on me trying to trying to push the boundaries of stuff. But the people that have lent me diamonds and gemstones and even material, they have all been like, no, no, stick with it, mm. you know, stick with it, and you it'll it'll get there. And thankfully, it's you know I still don't feel I've <clears throat> um met it in, but it is easier to pay people off. <laughs> That's what I, I'll say, you know. So in that respect, I feel like I, I've met it because I get to do the nice, the work I want to do and nobody is left, left hungry. Mm. Do you have to take in a lot of other work, like, you know, where some, uh, like maybe a local resident or something might say, oh, you know, I need this polished or I need this fixed. Do you do that kind of work as well? Or have you just skipped all that and decided, right, I'm doing this high-end thing and I live and die by my own creativity? Uh, yeah, pretty much the last one. <laughs> <laughs> For better or worse. Um, yeah, well, you see, I did, I did all the the trade work for, let's say, you know, I used to f- fly over from Knock Airport here and go to Hatton Garden and collect work, come back home here and work on it for three weeks and bring it back. Then, so I did all the trade work and I did that kind of thing, which was fantastic because it it kept the cash flow going. And gave me enough money to try and set up my my studio in Castle Bar. Um, it also gave me the the time to to work and again perfect the art. Like it's to the setting. Like I did a calculation there before COVID, and in the last twelve years, I'd roughly set one hundred ninety seven thousand diamonds oh, based on a, on an average of setting seventy diamonds per day, give or take. You know, some days you you set 150, you know, but like it's it's learning the craft. I can't stress that enough. You have to learn your your trade. Yeah. Um, but do I do any of that? I don't do any trade work anymore, and I don't um no, I don't do any local work really. That yeah. kind of thing. Do you ever lose anything in the workshop? I'd be afraid of my life, Nigel, of going under the bench and never find it again. It might be worth a couple of thousand <laughs> kind of thing. Does that ever, do you ever go, shit, where did I put that? Uh, no, no. I've kept it, <laughs> we have a very tidy, tidy setup, you know. Um, no, it's, well, look, you might lose the, a few small diamonds here and there, but... Uh, no, you... <laughs> so look at who hasn't done that like <laughs> who hasn't yeah i think i swallowed a sapphire once but we won't talk about <laughs> for a bet before before we <laughs> no, get no, on it was my mistake <laughs> it was my mistake you know um how was tracy getting along because you you mentioned there as well that tracy was a huge part of your success um when the two of you moved back there and tracy is a brilliant visual artist herself like you know i think there's yeah. liam kennedy's house is one of the you know it's like a gallery of, of tracy's at this stage her work has been shown here in stockholm on many occasions been a few years yeah. years now and years now pre-covid since she was last here but um she obviously has her own art she has the things that she likes to do but she's also helped you how much of that was a partnership of you know the two of you setting up the jewelry business together oh well it was it was 50 50 like it was it it's still like even though it's my name that's on it it still is tracy tracy behind the scenes thankfully in the last let's say six months financially we've got a little bit more secure so i've been able to take on more staff that's been able to take the pressure off tracy in that respect do you know Hmm. um like just the paperwork side of things she has been able to step back from that so now she is 
getting back into her own um, visual art and working on some amazing pieces as we speak. But it's still a, a, it's still a 50-50 thing. Like we, we talk about everything. Um, it's yeah, it's it's definitely a partnership as opposed to just me. Yeah. So you can have all the Instagram pictures of yourself of yourself that you like, but still Tracy is there pulling the strings, basically. Well, she's the one taking the pictures. <laughs> <laughs> That's the only reason she's not in them. If there's any yeah. justice in this world, she'd be front row center. Can we? <laughs> your eldest son, Tig, he was born in Sweden, wasn't he? Yes. Yeah, he was born in. Um... He's born in Stockholm and we moved home when he was uh, 11 weeks old. So does he have any Which, relationship to Sweden? Is he aware of the fact that he was that he was born here at all? Yeah, yeah. Like we brought him back a few times and um, yeah, he's he's still, <laughs> I think uh, when he gets older, I think it'll be a bit more, um, a bit more of a thing for him, I suppose. Yeah. It's fairly exotic all the same. Being in school in Mayo, having been born in Stockholm, does that win him any brownie yeah. points uh, with the locals, does it? <laughs> Uh, I don't know. I think maybe if he meets some Swedish women when he gets older, it might be a good starting line or something like that. But I, <laughs> I, I was born in Stockholm. No, you weren't. Get out of that. Yeah, I can see how that would work. That's fantastic. <laughs> but is it something that, you know, you as a family, is it something that's sort of close to you still? The fact that yourself and Tracy were here under our very formative years, the fact that Tyg was born here, or is it something that's just sort of part of the past now, more, to, more so? Oh, no, it's a, it was a huge part of our lives uh, for both of us. And um, like that, we like you're saying formative years, like Tracy was, you know, doing art for two and a half years solid, had like gallery representation, still does have gallery representation in Stockholm. Um, no, it, it would always have a, a good place in our hearts for for really great reasons. We still have some great friends out there like yourself. And it's um, yeah, no, Stockholm will always have have good memories for us. Will you ever see yourself in a position where are you, have you become Michael O'Dwyer now, where you're sort of bringing in people and you're teaching them, you're showing them the ropes in the way that he did for you when you were here? Uh, yeah, well, we, so I work with my older brother. Um, so he used to be a plasterer. And during the economic downturn, he was a bit, uh, I'd say, disillusioned with what was going on. Mm. And I was doing lots of trade work and I was kind of at the stage where I had too much to do. And I was like, come work with me. And he's like, I haven't a clue about jewelry. And I was like, you don't have to just go with me. Cause I knew he's a, he's a craft person. He's always been good with his hands. He's one of those mm -hmm. annoying people that's good at everything they does, <laughs> do you know? So, <laughs> um, yeah, I hate those guys. So I knew once I was able to show him, show him the basics and like train him up um i knew he'd be able to do it and he's like a lot of that stuff you'll see on instagram he's he's set yeah um and also i a 15 year old came to me during lockdown he was in transition year and transition years were kind of forgotten during the covid years so he didn't have anything to do so he stayed work with me and he's absolutely fantastic he's an amazing goldsmith and has you know all the skills if he wanted to keep going forward he he can the only thing is he's doing his leave insert this year which is really pissing me off because i need him now more than ever <laughs> and i think school is wasted too, on he, children <laughs> yeah i think he's uh, i think he's pretty smart so 
he probably has lots of options where I only had the one option, which is do <laughs> which this. Just keep him, basically. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I try and take on, um, you know, students as well. I've got another 15-year-old girl. She'll be at work. Um, she's done two weeks already. And, yeah, it's just, it's nice to be able to help people out because, like I said, those likes of Jane Houston, um, Rudolf Helsel, Erwin Springbrom, and Michael, they all took me on and helped me. Uh, so I wouldn't be here without any of their help. So it's just, just it's nice to be nice, do you know? Oh, 100%. Um, yeah. I, for the life of me, I can't think of any transferable skills between plastering and goldsmithing. But if you were, you know, if somebody was looking at a change of career and thinking, yeah, I, I love what Nigel is doing. I've seen his stuff on the Instagram page. Is it possible like your elder brother did, you know, that maybe in his late 20s, his mid 30s or whatever, to, to change tack and go doing the kind of thing that you were doing? And if so, how would somebody go about it? Uh, of course it is yeah like it's 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 never too late to do these things and like uh, on that um there's a chiropodist down the road here in castlebar and she has approached me if i would train her in diamond setting so we've done a few days and she definitely has has the skills you know um uh, what how would people go about it uh well like there is courses like those Antwerp courses still going. I know there's um a guy in Holland that does courses. Again, try and find a goldsmith near you that, you know, just to get in there, get a few days practice and just see. Because some people, it isn't for them. Like it is quite a lot of dexterity and you have to be able to sit at your bench and set 300 diamonds and not and like it, <laughs> you know? So... Um, advice to other people. God, I don't. Uh, yeah, just try and get in with with a goldsmith and see if they'll give you a few days and just kind of work it that way. Like that's how I I got into it. Um, like Rudolph didn't want an apprentice. He didn't want to take on on anybody. But I just kept showing up at his place, <laughs> and eventually it was just easier to have me inside than hanging around outside beating on the window every five minutes kind yeah, of thing, you know? yeah definitely. it seems like it's a very sort of a, a very people based business Nigel you know for you you mentioned that you're never happier than when you're sitting at your bench but there seems to be an awful lot of contact there seems to be an awful lot of relationships involved in becoming successful at this yeah I suppose it's a uh, now that you just said it it kind of makes sense I do like that point part of it as well you know just um, like the diamond dealers gemstone dealers like even have your bullion dealer, like it's, um, yeah, there's a lot of contact, a lot of, I suppose you, you have to be good at that too. You have to be good at being able to get yourself out there mm. and and talking to people and get in front of the right people. Like again, people talk about the New York story, like Bird of Goodman happened this year, but I had been going out to New York for five years before that, before anything happened, do you know? Yeah. Like a lot of visits, a lot of talking. My first like kind of business trip to New York, I remember on the plane home going through that I had done my, you know, speech 24 times in five days. <laughs> I was just, I got home and I had my, my jewelry with me. I only had like six pieces with me. I put it in the safe and closed the safe. I was like, I do not want to see these pieces for weeks, <laughs> you know? Because if I have to talk again about them, I may end up <laughs> killing somebody. <laughs> yeah. But um, 
again that's a skill you have to learn i'm sure you know it yourself like um you have to get yourself out there and talk to the right people i got great advice off he's like put some people around you that are going to get you in the right places mm. and one of those guys said we'll get open the door for you nigel but you have to step through it yeah so that that's the biggest thing really you have to be able to uh, and put your money where your mouth is too there's no point sitting in mayo here talking about oh i could do this in new york and i could do that it's like well buy a ticket go over there and and do it you mm-hmm. know so that's that's, that's <laughs> what you have to do the simplest way to do it um i i'm assuming you know you're well rooted now back in mayo for the last uh, 10 10 years or so do you ever miss stockholm and would you ever see yourselves coming back here for any sort of a uh, longer period uh, I miss parts of Stockholm, but it's it's no more than once you have children, your life changes anyway. Do you mm. know? So Stockholm was before kids. Um, if we were in Stockholm now, I don't know. It'd be a very different situation. Mm. Um, as to moving anywhere, no, I can't see myself moving anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> that was very definitive. Was like, no. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> that was very definitive. It's just uh, can I say myself? No, no, I'm just not doing that. No, no, definitely not. <laughs> no, I'm. Uh, well, you know, we we built a house here. Um, I'm very proud of the fact that we we've, we've been able to build here, and we're just building a new studio now for Tracy, so she can have a separate a separate studio for her work. Um, because at the minute she's painting in my old studio in the house here, which is is great, but she needs her own space and yeah we're we're really working towards building a, a home here for ourselves that we can relax and is inspiring in its own way do you know um like maybe talk to me in another 10 years when the kids are in college maybe i'll i want to move somewhere else then <laughs> He'll be back to, college, to i have no intention of sending them to college if they don't want to go to college that's that's also another thing. You never know. There might be cheap labour in the family business yet, you know. If I do I talk to you yeah. in 10 years, Nigel, where do you expect to be in your career at that point? Um, that is a, a tough... Well, the goal... The goal, let's say, two years ago was to get to New York and then get to Sotheby's. And we've achieved that. And then after that, our goal would be, let's say, making just a number, like 12 pieces a year. If we can work on 12 pieces, um, that's just a rough idea of like spending a month on a, a piece and being able to give it your full attention for for that time. And then those pieces to be sold in galleries are sold to art collectors that's kind of my that's my goal mm. if we can get to that stage because i never want to be the kind of and like staffing wise i think we're we've dermot i've got my other brother who um does the cad design and, and if we had another apprentice and maybe one more working on the, the paperwork side of things that to me is capacity i don't want to have any more because at that stage, then I'm just running a, a factory as opposed to mm. designing and being able to make the pieces myself, uh, make part of the pieces myself. Uh, my goal, 10 years time. Yeah, 10 years time, 
12 pieces a year or maybe less or, or maybe less doing what i want to do for a million euro each just to make it worth your while kind of thing is it yeah yeah well there's no point getting out of bed for less you know? <laughs> well nigel it's been an absolute pleasure <laughs> yeah, exactly yeah i might get out of bed for more it's been an absolute pleasure catching up with you um where can people find you and follow your career and follow your work if they want to do that uh, I suppose Instagram is the most up to date. So just Nigel O'Reilly, uh, Goldsmith, or just Nigel O'Reilly. You'll see my picture there. And nigeloreilly.com is my website, and that's where you can you can find me. There you go. And if it's good enough for Saoirse Ronan, it's good enough for the listeners to the Irish in Sweden podcast. My the, All my best to yourself and to Tyg and to the whole family, but in, in particular to Tracy. And God knows in a few weeks' time, we'll get her on to talk about her visual art. But for now, Nigel O'Reilly, thanks so much for talking to me. Thanks, Diamonds were formed three billion years ago under the Earth's crust. The pressure and heat caused carbon atoms to crystallize and form the diamonds we know today. Only 20% of mined diamonds are good enough to sell, taking into account clarity, color, and shape. Most diamonds found in mines are about 10 carats, and that's before cutting and polishing, so that they're ready to slip onto your finger. You know what? It's amazing the rabbit holes you can go down when you're making this podcast. That's <laughs> just a little bit of information I found on YouTube of all places uh, about diamonds because from, you know, often when you're talking to people about things, like when you're talking to Rory Moore about business or sustainability or when you're talking to Nigel about diamonds, you realise how little it is you know and then you go digging around a little bit and then all of a sudden you've lost about four hours of your day because you've been watching weird YouTube clips or you've been reading some report that you found somewhere about something, but sure isn't that the crack anyway. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. As I say, Nigel, a lovely fellow altogether. And his wife, Tracy, will definitely get on the podcast uh, at some future date, you know, as uh, as soon as I get my broadband sorted out at home, I can have a chat with him. Um, I'm trying to remember now if there's anything that I have to tell you about. I know I've told you already about that event. Um, again, you know, just keep an eye out for what's happening up in Yavlin, up in Lulio. You have the book fair coming up in Gothenburg, so there's plenty of things going on. And um, feel free to reach out to me on social media, on LinkedIn, on Facebook, on Instagram, right? Again, don't assume that I know what's going on everywhere, right? And for the love of Jesus, don't get annoyed when I don't mention your event, right? Make sure you tell me about these things. I am more than happy to spread the word and to share them amongst the community. But you have to let me know and do my best to keep up with Sophie Murphy's Irish and Sweden calendar. But occasionally things do pass me by especially when I'm jet-lagged and I'm meeting myself coming back. Before we go, a little shout-out to the best Irish pub in Stockholm and probably all of Sweden, our good friends and sponsors there at Veerstrom's Pub in Gamlastan. We're into September now, lads. So this is, the, you know, probably the best part of the year. If you're going to get a season ticket for Veerstrom's, I'd be doing it right about now because the soccer is on and there's club Gaelic football in hurling and the rugby will be starting soon enough and the autumn internationals and all you need to do, anything you want, go down there to Martin Hessian, uh, tell Martin you are sent by the Irish and Sweden podcast he'll put on whatever television channel you want find a little snug to sit yourself down in go and watch whatever sport you got the usual great menu and uh, one of the things that you know and it's a very modern thing I suppose in the pub business is uh, all the different craft beers that are now available and I know that they change reasonably regularly sure Jesus I can barely keep up with them so uh, if you check out the Instagram page there for Veerstrom's Pub you'll see what the guest beers are and there's some wonderful things being done there that Martin has on tap so get yourselves down there now and while away an autumn evening or an autumn afternoon if you happen to be around town but sure listen we'll leave it at that for this week if you can support the show patreon.com forward slash arrowman in Stockholm the more people that sign up the more and the longer that I'll be able to keep doing these things 
uh, there will be the new Global Gale podcast going to be coming very shortly. So, and that everything will be on the same feed, right? So, the Ironman Stockholm podcast will be back. The Global Gale podcast will be back. There'll be more episodes of Premier Swedes, and there'll be the Irish and Sweden podcast. So, when you contribute to one, you're contributing to all of them. So, you'll have all that content there for you to enjoy. Jesus, I won't have any time left to be working there if that was the case, you know. But you're looking in the meantime, look after yourselves, look after one another, and I'll be back again next week with an episode of the Irish in Sweden podcast. Good luck.